This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye-bye-bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. For the City of London, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jonathan Farrow. It is really loud up here today because we're live from New York City at our global headquarters for the Bloomberg Year Ahead Conference. And it gets very busy at about midday in New York time because Elisa Abramovich runs up here for the soup. <laughs> With the soup. Today it's a pasta. No soup, it's pasta today, which means Vince Signorella comes up looking for (laughs) some as well. And he's going to join us around a table. So we're going to have a great hour right here in New York City with coverage of what's happening in markets and in politics worldwide. Let's get you up to speed on some of the top stories first, though. And as always, catch up with Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrell. Lots going on. We begin with Sky News in the UK. A warning for regulators from pay TV company Sky. The company says it could shut down Sky news if the channel gets in the way of the proposed takeover by Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox. Regulators are reviewing the proposed deal, and that includes an evaluation of the Murdoch family's influence over the British news industry. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson will try to keep the U.S. in the Iran nuclear deal and save his own job. Johnson is flying to Washington to meet with congressional leaders. President Trump has said he won't certify that Iran is complying with the deal. And after outperforming Wall Street for most of the year, trading results at France's largest banks are returning to reality. Credit Agricole and Société Générale led the declines, with both posting revenue slumps of about 25%. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much. Let's start with the UK, shall we? Prime Minister Theresa May may lose her second cabinet minister in a week. British news media reporting that May is likely to fire International Development Secretary Priti Patel over unauthorized meetings with Israeli officials. If Patel's return does result in her dismissal, she will be the second minister to depart May's cabinet in just one week after Defence Secretary Michael Fallon resigned amid allegations over his past behaviour towards women. So guys, picture this. You are a minister in Prime Minister May's cabinet and you take a vacation. You go on holiday to Israel. And while you're there, you set up meetings with Israeli officials, but you don't tell your boss, the Prime Minister, and the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, doesn't know about it either. Then it gets publicised and they find out what you've been up to in Israel and you head down to Africa to continue your vacation. (laughs) You end up in Kenya, in Nairobi. And she's on a flight back from Nairobi to London, and many expect that when she lands in Heathrow, she's going to get fired. 22,000 people on flight radar tracked her flight from Nairobi in Kenya to London Heathrow, anticipating that when she landed, she would be fired. Joining us from Zurich is Alistair McCaig of Fernwealth. Alistair McCaig, I imagine you've been following this story. It is the most bizarre political turn in the UK. You've got a Prime Minister losing her grip on her Brexit strategy, and now on the location of her team and what they're up to. Um, Jonathan, to quote Sir Humphrey from Yes Prime Minister, to lose one cabinet minister may be considered most fortunate. To lose both looks like carelessness, and that looks very much like what's about to materialise here. Um, it's, uh, it's an unfortunate turn of event for uh, Theresa May. She already had more than enough on her plate as it was, um, uh, and it seems like she's in a very difficult position not to uh, yeah, excessively reprimand 
uh, pretty Patel for her actions. It, it just looks, it looks like she's lost control if she doesn't do something. In the meantime, Alistair McKay, the big headline in the Financial Times today was a meeting behind closed doors of several bank executives from Wall Street meeting with Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary of the United States. And essentially, the headline that's come from that is that many of these banks are at the Brexit point of no return, that if they don't get a deal on the table, if they don't give any clarity on what this transition period will look like, they're just going to start making a move. If there is a Brexit point of no return, where is that out? Well, Jonathan, you, you and I have been chatting about this every week for, for quite some period of time, and I've said they all have contingency plans, and the longer this takes, the more those contingency plans migrate into plans. And we've already seen a number of banks start to action that. If they don't get something solid on the table before the end of this year that gives the bank some sort of belief that, that there is going to be a sustainability in the, in the business relationships that the UK has yeah. with Europe, then you've got to believe that 2018, the beginning of it, is going to start to see more, more headlines re revolving around international banks. I want, to take, uh, I want to take the opportunity to apologise to my audience um, in London. Earlier this week, I vowed not to talk about Brexit for the rest of the week. I, I had a vote in the studio. Vince Signorella voted that we should not talk about Brexit for the rest of the week. And we lasted about 48 hours. Take, I, yes. I carried through yesterday. We didn't talk about Brexit at all on this show yesterday, and we're back on it again, which means Lisa looks super fascinated and really entertained here in New York City <laughs> I mean, it's about like the Tourette's, prospect like of Brexit. Brexit. It, it is a little bit like Tourette's, right? Are you not, sick not of hearing it? Anything, not that there's anything wrong you with it. You sit here in New York, are you sick of talking about it? Yeah, totally sick of talking about it. Because Why? it's this slow-moving train wreck. Uh, you hear all of this posturing from banks, and then you hear in conversations afterwards that uh, it's just a couple of hundred people, and it's not going to be that big of a deal, <laughs> and we're still going to stay in London. Uh, and Meanwhile, you know, you have a UK economy that's, you know, not doing great, not doing terribly, uh, kind of, you know, treading water. Yes, it's been damaging, but it's sort of like there's nothing happening. And even May, I mean, that's been a, tra a train wreck. Theresa May has been a train wreck as well. And, and it's sort of what's going to happen to her tenure. It's sort of what's the news here? So the politics is bad. Mm -hmm. The optics is ugly. <laughs> and then I look at Sterling, which is just weak, 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 Vince, in the face of a rate hike from the Bank of England that I'm still struggling to find two people anywhere that believe they should have done it. Well, uh, so the rate hike, again, we'll, we've discussed that, and we think more than anything else that was just uh, to correct the rate cut, which really wasn't needed after Brexit. That so you was, found uh, one. That was almost a panic. of So, of so, so you're endorsing the rate hike from, from Governor Carney, Vince? I'm endorsing it from taking back the cut, which wasn't you, necessary, you found one. to just to smooth smooth things away, but it, even now the hype just wasn't necessary at all. There's no inflation to speak of. As far as Brexit and as May are concerned, this is like going to the DMV. I mean, you stand online and you're waiting for something to happen and it takes all day and you're still left to where you started. Isn't that the lesson from this so far, Alistair McKay, that nothing's going to happen anytime soon? Is this slow train wreck, if you do believe it's going to be a train wreck, is that what it is for you sitting in Zurich? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, it, you're right. The story doesn't migrate particularly uh, far in, in the space of a week. It is like watching a car crash in slow motion. But you do feel that things are, are reaching breaking points, certainly as far as Theresa May is concerned. Uh, the Conservative Party themselves will undoubtedly be starting to hold more meaningful conversations behind closed doors about her ability to lead the party um, and govern the country. And that, that's going to come to a head. John, uh, I'm just wondering, when you talk to your friends back in London, do they also have Brexit threats? Uh, my, my friends do not talk about Brexit. <laughs> and many, of them, many, many of them were the ones that voted for Brexit. When I knew that this, really? might, when I knew that this might happen, 
is when I left my London bubble and traveled two hours north back to the Midlands, the heartlands of manufacturing back in the day. And I said to my mates, what's going on? They said, well, we're voting for Brexit, aren't we? And I looked at them and I was, are we? And they said, yeah, or my mates are voting for Brexit too. And I looked around and I thought, you know what? Here's the big, big difference. The metropolitan elites of the city of London, all preaching the, uh, the, uh, the positives of what belonging to the European Union actually means. And that came out in the vote. That came out in the vote in London as well. And then you got outside of London through the rest of the UK and experienced how people really felt about Europe and their intentions to vote. So when it came to June 23rd and we got the results day in the following 24 hours and a big market action, I think anyone that has spent a little bit of time outside of the British capital yes. probably anticipated Do they it. regret it, the vote? I, they don't even bring it up. Regret what? Regret what? We have so much conversation here on Bloomberg Radio about Brexit and whether you regret it. There's nothing to regret yet as far as they're concerned because they haven't felt anything. The only time they will feel something is if the banks do make a decision by year and start moving businesses and jobs and headquarters into Frankfurt, which is, seems to be the place they want to yeah. go, some in Ireland perhaps. And then you may still feel a pinch in the real estate market yeah. and, of course, in the job market. And then, you know and about then it. you'll start to see some and issues. And to some price. extent, if you're shopping and you see the higher prices, you're experiencing it already, though you probably don't link that back to Brexit. Next up on this program, we're going to talk about Vince Signorella's stock holdings. Whatever he buys, sell. That's next. <laughs> this is The Cable with Jonathan Farrell on Bloomberg Radio. Live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, this is The Cable. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. What a story for Snapchat. The earnings were ugly, the stock gaps lower. Then Tencent comes out and declares and unveils a 10% stake in the parent of Snapchat and the stock goes surging and then we roll over again because everyone realizes that doesn't really change anything as far as the company is concerned. Snapchat taking some drastic steps to broaden its audience, overhauling the mobile app as well to make it more, quote, user-friendly, and the stock is still plunging. Now, before the commercial break, we talked a little bit about Vince Signorella's stock holdings. Let's talk about more. Vince, you won't snap. Yes, I, uh, and it's a full, and a full disclosure. Full disclosure about these full holdings. Disclosure. This is not are you something proud? we would usually do on Bloomberg Wait, on Radio, but are please. You, are you proud of this disclosure? I, I would say this. There's a reason why I'm a global macro strategist, and, <laughs> and my specialties are FX and rates, is because I am awful at picking individual stocks. Um, overall broad stock movements, yes, but in individual picks, and as you can see by this, I will say I own two stocks. I won't mention the other one because you guys will all go out and trash that one for no particular well, uh, reason. Uh, a lot of people are going to be using you as a contraindicator yeah. now and they'll if, be reaching I, out with I, serious money I, to find out that second If I stock. do come out and say, <laughs> uh, I really like this stock, A, yeah. whatever that happens to be, you should really uh, <laughs> let, let a few go if you own it. That's all I will say about my, my Alistair, Alistair McKay over in Zurich, you would have seen the last 24 hours as far as Snapchat is concerned. What a, a disaster. There are talk now that they actually have um, a warehouse with $40 million worth of spectacles in because they had to take a $40 million write-down almost on those spectacles that they released. If I say Snapchat to you, Al, what do you say? I'm going to show my age here and say I, I don't quite get my head around the, the whole concept of it. Certainly the spectacle aspect, I thought right from the word go, I, I was confused and didn't understand. That being said, if I look back in time and said to myself, how do I view Facebook? Um, I would have found it difficult to believe that the age demographics of the Facebook consumer would have increased as much as it ultimately has. And therefore, the revenue streams from advertising and the attractiveness for advertisers would increase too. So maybe I'm just being a touch old and naive to believe or to, to 
view Snapchat's sort of consumer base as yeah. too young and not valuable enough. Well, in, many, in many ways, Al, you've touched on the heart of the problem and they're trying to address it. They're trying to make the app easier to use because they want to attract an older demographic and they need to go after the Facebook audience. Vince, have you ever used it? Is it even on your phone? No, it actually isn't. You just, you just bought it <laughs> and you've never used it. I, I, in, in my own defense, I, I, I don't own enough of it to influence a vacation decision. Let's put right. it that way. It's a very, very small holding. I, w I, I bought it because I, I actually thought about buying Facebook at 17. And, and decided, <laughs> I don't get this, as Alistair was saying, you know, I'm in the same age demographic as he is, and I don't really get how this works. I don't understand why this is so popular. I don't even have a Facebook page. Don't we have Facebook in triple digits now, Vince? Something along those lines, yes. Yeah. So in, in remorse of my not buying Facebook, you I bought thought, Snap. I, I bought Snap. <laughs> can we, and so can once we, again, here's my, here's my excellence at choosing stocks. Can we take a moment to um, have a conversation about probably the most fascinating IPO of the last few years? Tencent sold their e-book unit, and one in 20 people in Hong Kong bid for a slice of this, and there was so much money locked up that interbank rates in Hong Kong went higher off the back of this IPO. It was like over 600 times oversubscribed. Did you guys hear about this? Not that. Totally detail, ridiculous. Really. And I'm looking at the situation right now and wondering if you think the Chinese sort of stock drive hunger around tech and everything has died down, I would say look out for that 10 cent IBO and get a read on it because it was remarkable. I will say the lesson here, this this company had an IPO in March. Its shares have plunged 30%. This raises questions about valuations of tech companies that have yet to go public uh, and just how much money they've raised and whether it's really worth it. Well, just, how, just how bubbly maybe the private That's markets right. are and these guys um, are going to have to wait a long, long time if they want to see the valuations they're getting in private markets reflected in public markets anytime soon. So that's uh, Airbnb, Uber, and, and pretty much every one of those other unicorns. All your unicorns. Hanging around, waiting for something better. Next up on the program, we're going to talk a little bit more about the market and Trump on tour for the City of London. This is The Cable. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow. On Bloomberg Radio. For the City of London, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, this is The Cable. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. We are live from Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City for the Year Ahead Conference here at Bloomberg. I like where we're located for two reasons. One, you're closer to the exit when I finish work. And two, HR is just up the <laughs> stairwell about 20 <laughs> steps away from me and about 20 seconds. And it means when Lisa Bramage is around, I can get upstairs in about two minutes and just list out the HR violations <laughs> as, as we rattle through them. That's two good. minutes ago in the commercial break, we're talking about how uncomfortable the chairs are. <laughs> and Lisa says to me, well, if you put on a little bit of weight... I did not say that. This I said chair would be a little, a little bit, bit better more. for you. Two different things. Well, I, I don't know if those two things are, distinct, are that different, Lisa. Uh, are we going to talk about President Trump and we China? We're going to talk about President Trump, China, and, and 12 months since the election took place. Yeah, that's right. And how different the markets are relative to what people expected. So take a listen to what our audience and our viewers told us about 12 months ago about the prospects of a Trump administration and what it meant for markets. I think you're going to see the, the, the marketplace level out with every iteration of what comes out of this, this president-elect. And I think that the flow of that will be more consistent, will be more thoughtful, 
will start calming the fears of, and the jitters of these erratic markets. Because the market is what it is. If fiscal spending is confined to, to shovel-ready infrastructure, then uh, then there's not much to, to be had in terms of growth. And so I, I would still stick to the 1% to 2% growth rate that the uh, uh, you know the IMF and, and others are suggesting for the U.S. I, I don't think a Trump victory um, will really do much there uh, in, in terms of uh, the policies that he's now advocating. I am not telling you that overnight this market's just going to run away on the upside. I, I still think that there, there is no question you don't just wipe out the problems because Donald's coming in in January. I mean, there's still, I think, a number of problems in our economy. Donald Trump is pro-business, and he's pro-America, and he, he wants to see companies grow and, and do well and create jobs and, uh, and, and bring consumer prices down for the American people. So that, that makes me feel a lot better. You were listening to Tom Barrack of Colony Capital, the chairman there, Bill Grosser, Janice Henderson, Carl Icahn of Icahn Enterprises chairman, and of course, Harold Hamm of Continental Resources. Guys, my favourite market-related story from election night 12 months ago was Carl Icahn. Now, picture the scene. He's in black tie. He's at a cocktail party, potentially celebrating the election of President Donald Trump. Gets out his phone. He sees futures down 100, sees futures down 2, sees futures down 3, 4, 5. And he says, screw the cocktails. He leaves the party. He heads back to the office, logs back into the Bloomberg and starts buying aggressively. And he was saying it was super, super liquid. He got in in size and got long aggressively. And I, I'd love to know, A, I want to hear Carl Icahn on record now talking about that night. And B, Lisa, I want to know how much money he made oh my with God. futures gapping that aggressively lower. And whether he's sold out yet or whether he has uh, stayed in because the market has continued to rally since then. Uh, so there, of course, is the question, you know, how has the market changed since President Trump took over? And uh, the reality is he's been uh, relatively ineffective on a policy level. I mean, this is just an objective statement. Uh, he hasn't gotten really anything material passed. Uh, so, you know, things are kind of creeping along as such, yeah. right? So, I mean, it, there really hasn't been a material change. Alison McKay, Gafern Wealth, if we go back 12 months ago, the attitudes towards a, a Donald Trump White House, for the markets at least, there were some dire consequences apparently around the corner that just have not materialized. And I just wonder reflected on the last 12 months what have we learned uh well uh, timelines are being uh, redrawn and expectations of when uh, um, policy changes what might uh, appear are, are obviously a, a bit of a sliding uh, timeline i think it'd be fair to say uh, it does feel that um, when you consider all of the the um, the uh, issues that he's had um, swirling around him over that last uh, 12 months, he's, he's managed to ride it out relatively well, all things considered. Uh, he's still in power. He's still um, uh, running uh, the country. I think um, it's worth remembering, of course, that the, the, the sort of template of business for, for the U.S. didn't, uh, you know, renege, as it were. It didn't go backwards. Um, it just hasn't progressed as much as everybody was hoping for. So it's always worth remembering that. I, I think with uh, the, the nomination of the, the new next Fed chair um, coming out from, from the Trump administration um, and, and also the Republican Party getting behind uh, tax plans uh, changes, uh, you know, may, maybe we're, we're beginning to see a little bit of light at the end of that tunnel. Vince, for emerging markets, it was going to be terrible. Yeah. EM's ripped. For the dollar, it was going to be great. The dollar's rolled over. The dollar's rolled for over. treasuries, it was going to be really, really bad and yields are lower. Yes. What's gone on? I, I, well, first I would say it's 
weather. Carl Icahn didn't call me that night and ask me my opinion about stocks before uh, <laughs> on the night of the election. Um, no, I think Mark has got way He knows about your Snapchat position, he, mate. He knows, and he's if not he's calling you he about stocks. He knows now, and I probably he's, never hear he's not, he's not calling you about stocks anytime soon. Well, unless he wants to go the other way. <laughs> Uh, I think Mark's markets um, just reacted with a lot of hopium, but they thought all of this initiative was going to take place immediately. There was the idea that we had a Republican president, Republican House, Republican Senate, and that you know whatever fell out of Trump's mouth was going to get done immediately. Obviously, there was a great deal of backlash from the Democrats, and then from a lot of his inflammatory comments, he made, um, I won't say enemies with Republicans, although we can talk about Jeff Flake, but he's he's... He's put Republicans on the defense of coming up to midterm elections in 2018 so that he's not getting this grand support that he had hoped for. Yeah. And a lot of things haven't gotten done. However, on the economy side, um, what started out as a slow progression for businesses, et cetera, people have started finally making decisions. We are growing at 3%. So Mr. Gross was wrong about his one and a half, two percent. Starting to see some M&A as well. Starting to see some M&A, starting to see a lot of IG issuance where with the Fed now starting to raise interest rates gradually, a lot of corporations coming to the market to raise money and they're going to have to do something with that money. So it is likely they will start to make some investment or even if it's just share buyback and dividends, something is going to shake. We had some elections here in the United States um, in the last 24 hours, and Joe Weissenthal, my colleague, joked, um, will the dollar sell off now the ruling party has lost a regional election? There's an EM-type feel to the United States and to the UK at the moment and the way we approach markets. Vince Signorella of Bloomberg, thank you very much for joining us. Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovitz, we're going to try and make her stay. So this is um, the public pressure to stay for another 30 minutes. Let's see if she follows through. I'll just go to Alistair Fernwell, thank you very much, sir. From New York City at the Bloomberg Year Ahead Conference, you're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. For the City of London, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, you are listening to The Cable. Today, from our global headquarters in New York City for the Bloomberg Year Ahead Conference. In the markets today, the FTSE 100 just a little bit firmer, up by two-tenths of one percent. You know the story, if I tell you where the FTSE is, you can guess where sterling is. Lower, weaker against the dollar today, south of a dollar thirty. One, We trade right now on a cable rate, a whole lot weaker looking at the situation in the FX market. Will we drop below a 131 handle? We can have a conversation about that in just a moment. Let's cross over now to Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet and get you up to speed on uh, some of the top stories. Charlie. All right. I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Happy Wednesday to you in the UK. A warning for regulators from pay TV company Sky. The company says it could shut down Sky News if the channel gets in the way of the proposed takeover by Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox. Regulators are reviewing the proposed deal, and that includes an evaluation of the Murdoch family family's influence over the British news industry. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson is trying to keep the U.S. in the Iran nuclear deal and save his own job. Johnson is flying to Washington to meet with congressional leaders. President Trump has said he will not certify that Iran is complying with the deal. Johnson is under fire for his comments about a British-Iranian woman held in Iran. And after outperforming Wall Street for most of the year, trading results at France's largest banks are returning to reality. Credit Agricole and Société Générale led the declines with both posting revenue slumps of about 25%. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Lisa Ramage, help us out. How is Sterling flirting with the 131 handle after the Bank of England hike rates just a week ago? 
Well, I mean, I'm just going to go back to Vin, what Vince said because Vince evidently thought that it was a great idea. So he's your one person right he's, there. He's the one person he's they the thought one... they should have done it. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's just basically reversing uh, the mistake, as he put it, uh, the Bank of England dropping rates right after Brexit. So if that's the case, nothing changes. Sterling continues where it was headed before. As you can tell, Lisa Abramovich did not make it up to uh, human resources to, to get out of doing the second 30 minutes of the program, and she'll be sticking with us. Over in D.C., my colleague Bloomberg's Michael McKee caught up with the U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin for an exclusive interview just a moment ago, speaking to him about tax cuts and a potential one-year delay in a reduction of the corporate tax rate. Take a listen to this conversation. Bad news in the headlines this morning. Republicans did not do well in the off-year elections. Given that a lot of people told uh, exit pollers they didn't like the health care plan, and you go into tax reform with it polling less than 50%. Do the elections change your strategy at all? Not, not at all. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. I think there's, there is very big support for middle income tax cuts, which is a big part of the focus of the president, and making our business tax system competitive with the rest of the world. That's what this is all about. The Senate is apparently considering a one-year delay implementing corporate tax cuts in order to make the budget math work. Is that acceptable to the administration? Our strong preference is that the corporate tax rate starts next year. The longer we wait, the worse it is for the economy and making companies competitive. And we look forward working with the Senate as the details come out. But you don't rule it out. Um, again, I just say the president's strong preference. He feels very strongly he wants to start this right away. But ha having said that, you know, we'll have to look at the entire Senate package. I assume it's really just a money issue as to how they're moving the different pieces around. So it's not it's not a philosophical issue. I'm sure that they'd like to start this as soon as they can. Speaking of the money issue, the Ways and Means Committee and its markup yesterday gutted the excise tax provision, makes another $74 billion hole in the package. Uh, how do you fill that? Um, you know, again, I think we're going through a very healthy process, which we started getting the House and the Senate and the administration on the same page. So the fundamental goals and the fundamental parts of the bill we've all agreed to. And now we're going through, a, you know, they're going through a very detailed process. You're talking about very technical issues on everything from the international side to pass-throughs and everything else. I think we're going through a very healthy process with the committees. That was the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin speaking exclusively to Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Joining us around a table in New York City alongside myself and Lisa now is Luke Cower of Bloomberg Markets and David Wilson who joins us as well. Luke, I missed you last week. I can only apologise, mate. Glad you're feeling better. I, I feel much, much better and it's great to have you around the table with us. At the epicentre of this tax plan is this 20% corporate rate and, and seemingly everything else just rotates around this effort to get there. Are we going to get the 20% straight up? Is that what the market needs to see? Or are we drifting towards this phased-in plan over a year or maybe several? Well, that's, that's a question on people's mind, but it almost seems like more of the debate has been around all of the ancillary issues, all of the special interests that can keep us from you know, any kind of meaningful tax reform. So I think it's really hard to answer that question without knowing, okay, are our home builders going to be able to you know, get what they need, get that 500,000 cap lifted? Are multinationals going to be able to push back against that so-called atomic bomb in the, uh, in the bill? And, and so far, if what you've seen is you know, special interests, they have a pretty good track record of winning, uh, an even better track record than Republicans in recent elections. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's easy to see how you know, things can get completely sidelined, but the market keeps going up on earnings. So, Dave Wilson, imagine the scene. The House tax bill comes out and then all these lobbyists just 
swarm DC and go after all these individual rules and say you can't have that, you can't have that, and it's this classic situation. I hate to simplify something really complex. Who wants a tax cut? Everyone. Who wants to pay for it? Tumbleweed. And that's always the story. Always the story, and it's no different this time around. You know, there are so many constituencies that would be affected in one way or another by whatever the legislation turns out to be that it's understandable you'd see pushback. And there's plenty of areas where people can push back. You know, think about being in New Jersey or New York and having your state and local tax exemptions go away. Spoken like a true New Jersey resident. I want to push back a little bit uh, on the characterization of everybody wants a tax cut, here's the tax cut, and now it's just no one wants to pay for it because this bill was drafted in complete secrecy uh, and it was done in a completely partisan way. In other words, it was completely done by the Republicans and they're trying to do it without involving the Democrats in any which way. So that complicates the whole issue. Even among the GOP party, uh, there was not any kind of disclosure on a broad level during the drafting of this bill. So all of a sudden trying to squeeze it through. Yes, the 20% tax rate is the only thing that really kind of is sort of the constant right in the middle, although many people are saying it's unrealistic and will have to go up at some point. Uh, but, but Luke, I mean, you nailed it, right? It's all about uh, the mortgage deduction and, the, and, the, and as you were saying, uh, Dave, about the local state taxes. And, and then again, of course, the fact that Steven Mnuchin saying we're going to have something on President Trump's desk by December. You think that's going to happen? Luke? Well, elections have consequences, like you said. That's the reason why we got a. That's the reason why we got a uh, Republican bill that you know distinctly goes at uh, Democratic constituencies, and now we have last night's results, which could also have consequences for this bill heading into next year's midterms. I think. Oh, I think a lot of Republican lawmakers that are in coastal states and traditionally blue states now have to say, okay, uh, this is something. Do I do something, or am I going to play by the Hippocratic oath and do no harm here? I think that's the big question, and that'll determine whether you know this bill continues to move forward or whether it kind of dies in the water. Let's draw. Let's draw a key distinction here, Dave Wilson. Elections have consequences, and of course this is a Republican effort, and of course there seems to be little care about the Democrats in, in New Jersey and New York, but this wasn't how it was in the 80s. It was very different. It wasn't. I mean, you had uh, Congress able to get together, at least on some level, and come up with legislation that uh, difficult to swallow, perhaps, in some cases, but at least something where you had a meeting of the minds. You don't have that. Same thing as we had with health care earlier this year, and you saw what happened there with the bill failing to pass. Who knows what happens this time around, but failing to learn from the lessons of history, perhaps? Very much so. For the City of London, you are listening to The Cable right here on Bloomberg Radio, live from New York City, our global headquarters for the Bloomberg Year Ahead Conference. The noise you can hear is Lisa Abramovich just pushing everyone out of the way, <laughs> trying to get to the food Soup. in the food Soup. hall, trying to get to the pasta on this Wednesday. It's pasta. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Just take a moment. Just, just, just 20 seconds. I don't even need 20 seconds. I'm going to ask my producer for like 10 to get Lisa Abramage to do her Canadian accent again. <laughs> and, and for anyone that's Irish in London right now, put your hands over your ears and pretend you can't hear this. What did you just do? It was from Fargo, North Dakota, so on the border of, of, of Canada. What was that? Like, oh, how, for how, fun. Uh, oh, for cute. Luke, does that oh, sound Canadian fun. or Irish? Oh, uh, not any Canadians I've met yet. No. Dave Wilson? 
I'm a New Jersey guy. I'm going to stay out of this. I said said just 20 minutes ago, there's two reasons I really like being up here. One's the exit, the show finishes in 20 minutes, I can bolt out the door. And the second reason is that stairwell leads to human resources. That's true. And it's only a couple of minutes away, Luke. And if you want to go and talk about this quietly and off the record, you can. Should we talk about Apple? Seems like a safe space. Apple in the news, looking for a breakthrough product to succeed the iPhone. It's now ramping up work on augmented reality and a headset. According to people familiar with the matter, they could be shipping this product as early as 2020. Unlike the current generation of virtual reality headsets that use a smartphone as the engine and screen, Apple's device will have its own display and run on a new chip an operating system. Is this the next in the product line, Dave Wilson, that I need to be thinking about? Well, you may need to be thinking about it. Now, whether it pans out is a whole other story because, you know, Apple's tried to bring out some new products, kind of pull back from it. You know, it was all about that they were going to do a smart TV a couple of years ago. There was a focus and, you know, perhaps a self-driving car get into that whole race. So who knows how it's going to turn out? I will tell you one thing, though. Forget 2020. Look at November 8th, 2017. Apple rose above $900 billion in market value for the first time. So it's only 11% away from becoming the first U.S. company, and I preface this with U.S. because it matters, to crack a trillion dollars in market value. Look, how significant is that for the market at a time where Apple already makes up such a massive weighting of some of these benchmarks in the United States? Where the market goes, where Apple goes, is seemingly hand in hand at the moment. Yeah, hey, we love round numbers. We love milestones here. And uh, (laughs) Apple, that kind of quintessential, it's morphed between being growth or value, you could argue, at some point in the past past three, five years. But I heard you say as as early as 2020? Like, this is the next breakthrough from Apple might (laughs) be as early as 2020? That's only just two years away. But uh, but let's let's think about it this way. It's, It's a stock that's done incredibly well this year, over the past year, and it's also cheaper on trailing or uh, next 12 month price earnings than the uh, than the Nasdaq 100, I, and it can buy back stock at next to nothing. I think that's what people care about right now in yeah. the market more than might we get a headset in 2020. Did you see the debt offering this week, Lisa? Yeah, not only wow. Apple but also Oracle. The fact that this is, I think, the eighth time. Apple has tapped the U.S. corporate bond market uh, so far this year eight times. That's shocking, especially, yeah. The second most active non-financial U.S. issuer this year, behind, I think, AT&T. Well, it's one of the most cash-rich companies on the planet. And this raises a really interesting point, which is you have this tax reform bill currently going through Congress that supposedly would give them a tax break to bring all this cash back to the U.S. So either uh, they don't think that this is actually going to happen and they're going ahead with raising money in the corporate bond market or else they don't care. And frankly, as we were talking earlier, Dave, it's just cheaper for them to borrow in the bond market right now and just buy back their shares with that, that money. Yeah, they don't care may well be the argument. And you do have to to bear in mind, there is a cost that goes along with stock. I mean, you've got uh, about a 1.5% dividend yield on Apple shares, so if they buy them back, and depending on what maturity you're talking about, it, it doesn't cost them more than 2.5% to do it when you yeah. figure in the dividends they won't be paying down the line. So put it all together, you can understand why they would tap the bond market, especially with corporate yields being so low in relative terms, you know, compared with treasuries. And it's a time when people want to buy the kind of bonds that Apple's selling. And also, as we discussed on this program earlier this week, I think it was Vince Signorella 
what a blessing for the PR department because the money's already been spent. So when they repatriate the cash, they don't get singled out as the company that brought all the money home and went and bought, and bought back stock and boosted dividends because they've already done it. Absolutely. For the City of London, this is The Cable. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. From the London Close to the US section, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, you are listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. Another session in London where the FTSE 100 travels higher, close to record highs, at up about two-tenths of 1%, with a weaker pound of the mix against the dollar, the cable rate, around 131 on the day so far. We're live from New York City at our global headquarters here at Bloomberg for the Year Ahead Conference. I'm thinking about looking back over the last 12 months and how many people turn around and say the market's in a bubble, the equity market's in a bubble, the property market's in a bubble, the bond market's in a bubble. There's a bubble among bubbles and there's some work that's been done in Bloomberg markets that I think is really, really fascinating that's yet to materialize into an official publication, but I understand it's going to come in 24 hours, Luke Cower, and you're going to give us a little bit of a preview of some of the work you and the team have done over the years so far and the lesson that we've learned. So the lesson that we've learned is, is essentially that uh, what goes up keeps going up and it keeps going up and it keeps going up. So all of these different things, when you look at some of the, the sovereign debt that, you know, for instance, comes from Argentina, uh, you won't get it back until after you've expired. Uh, that, throw in a little German long-term debt, the original Widowmaker. We put Bitcoin in there as well. We got a, got a new, new record, I should say, for Bitcoin surging today. Bitcoin, the, the, short, the short volatility trade, you throw an XIV. Uh, when you put all those things together, it actually results in a, a fairly well-diversified portfolio that uh, it rises in months, it rises in weeks, it rises fairly consistency. The drawdowns haven't been huge, and it's absolutely trouncing the market. So obviously, yes, uh, it's somewhat tautological to say, yeah, everyone should have just bought the things that are that are going up like crazy. But you know, that's what momentum investing has been, and it's been a difficult world for value. Were there any exceptions? Uh, a couple exceptions and some things that uh, you know are heading back to earth now. Like you, you've got Tesla, you've got uh, Sunak, probably the you know the poster child for the Chinese property bubble that uh, that's kind of fallen on hard times lately. Just talk to me a little bit about that, Luke. What is that? That uh, essentially Sunak's roll up. Uh, it's grown a lot by acquisitions. It's faced probes from regulators over some of its lending arrangements. And, uh, and in China, if, if we're going to really see a push to curb financial excesses in the wake of Congress, this is you know, a company that could presumably uh, bear the brunt of those stresses, but still a big on the year, still a huge contributor to the bubble portfolio all, overall success. So I don't know how liquid the bubble portfolio would be given some of the things that are inside it, but where are we? Are we up 40% in 2017? Um, yes, in, uh, in one flavor of it, we're up uh, 40%, and another it's... Uh, <laughs> in excess of 120 if you throw in some of the the more fun exotic stuff etfs of etfs uh, xiv things like that lisa picture the scene you're raising capital for a new fund and this is the pitch (laughs) we're going to take everything that's in a bubble and shove it into one portfolio and we're going to promise returns of 40 percent what do you think people would have said to you Well, I think that, uh, you know, I know my personal reaction is I want to go back to 2006, late 2006, and take all of the things uh, that people were starting to get worried about, the bankers, if you talk to them and you put them in a portfolio, and one year (laughs) later they would have been up quite a bit. 
Uh, and then right after that, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. There's something about that too. Yeah, this isn't a this isn't a timing vehicle. It's yeah. obviously <laughs> a backward-looking vehicle. We're getting the hey, small print right now. Uh, small hey, print. let's think about it though. It's been uh, as of tomorrow. It'll be the year a year since the VIX has breached 20. It's been a good time for uh, it's been a good time for bubbly assets. It's been a good time for risk assets. Talk to me about that, Dave. Uh, Lovell has been so supportive of this risk environment. What's going on? You know what it comes down to. I think it's more people remember back to the end of the 90s and how the technology stocks fell out of bed after that. And then, of course, 2007, and then the housing stocks fell out of bed after that. And you know, for a whole lot of investors, that's their experience. So they're looking for the next bubble. And then you throw in you know, the black swan concept that Nassim Nicholas Taleb introduced. And everybody's figuring, oh, this is going to be the next tech type bubble or the next housing type bubble and what's happened is for the most part the bubbles haven't burst if they have indeed been bubbles at all well, I would say that this is also a different time because of the unconventional monetary policies that have now become conventional and the bond buying purchases and arguably that we're never going to see yields uh, go back to where they were. You know, that's the that's sort of one speculation that's underpinning a lot of these, quote, bubbles. The question is, what happens if they're wrong? You know, if we do reset. Right. I mean, how, how long is it? that investors have been anticipating that the bond uh, market, uh, going back to the early 1980s, that that bull market move would finally end. They were talking about it two years ago. They were talking about it last year. And they were talking about it this year. They were and talking it about it happened. last week. Exactly. They said we They're go, still we go, talking we go about through 240 and it's over. The moment I, I, of truth. <laughs> I'm visualizing this one tweet I saw talking about Bitcoin, 2011 bubble, 2012 yeah, bubble, same forward thing. and forward to this year. And of course, it's up a whole lot since then. So that's the challenge of bubbles, figuring out if they indeed are bubbles. And if so, when do they burst? I, I still like what Joe Weissenthal said about, um, about Bitcoin, that this would be the first bubble, Luke, where Wall Street was the last in. <laughs> Usually it's Wall Street first and retail later, but this time um, Wall Street's the last in. Is there any signaling in that that Wall Street seems to be the last of the party here? I, ironically, maybe maybe it keeps going afterwards. Like uh, if you think about, we've been talking about lower efficient frontier. Uh, we've been talking about prepare for low future returns, and then there's this very shiny object waved in front of Wall Street that hey, just keeps going up, uh, yeah. keeps going up big. I, Maybe there's some more strength in that. After this conversation we've had, am I really going to call the top on a bubble? I, I don't think I can safely do that. I will say that the big test right now as the CME uh, creates futures around Bitcoin uh, is will exchanges start to treat Bitcoin like some true asset? If it does, all of a sudden, as Aaron Brown has pointed out, uh, formerly of AQR, then you'll see real money come in and you'll see the real value of Bitcoin emerge. But of course, if you indeed get these futures, it is a market that Wall Street controls. Why was Wall Street so late to the party? Because the whole market in cryptocurrencies is outside of Wall Street. They didn't have any incentive to get involved until they saw the prices yeah. going up and up and up and up and up. I was at a party on Saturday. All they wanted to ask me about was Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I got an Uber a couple of months ago. What does the guy want to talk about? Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. In London, let me tell you, the black cab drivers ask you about dollar yen. They ask you about Tullian because they trade on the FX platforms. And all he More really wants to talk about, all he really wants to talk about is Brexit. Uh, Won't anyone clearly. talk about Brexit? Well, Brexit's being banned tomorrow. We can get away with it. Luke Cowher, Dave Wilson and Lisa Abramovich have loved having you on the program. Thank you from our global headquarters in New York City for the capital in London. This is Bloomberg Radio.